Please turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 4. Now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may, that, that you may fear the, wait, that you may, you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, you and your son and your grandson, all the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged. Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love... Oh, wait, there. <laughs> Good evening. It is good to see you tonight. We're thankful for your presence and very thankful for this opportunity. Uh, so thankful for you and your encouragement, your kind words. It's so appreciated. Uh, I'm humbled and very thankful. And sometimes you help me, and I appreciate that as well. I didn't use the best choice of words this morning, which is not uncommon, I'll tell you that. Um, I use the word negative to describe the material this morning. That's just not the best connotation. It's not what I was going for, but I said that. I think a better description would have been, this morning there are things you cannot do, and this evening there are things you can do. It's not really negative and positive. It's just the reality of the case. There, you, you can't do some things, and you can do some things, and so hopefully this evening we'll look at some of those things. The first of which is how to get your family to heaven. Well, believe that what you do matters. Let's start there. You, you have to believe that what you are doing matters in this quest to get your family to heaven. The second thing I would quickly add is try until you die. Uh, don't give up on this. Uh, if you're trying to get your, heaven, your family to heaven, as long as you have breath in your, in your lungs, keep trying. Don't give up. Try until you die. Practically speaking, what are some things you can do? And these will make a difference. We'll get to Deuteronomy chapter 6 momentarily, but if you have your Bible, go back a couple of books to Exodus chapter 34, and let's begin there. We're going to help our family, our children, get to heaven. Here's number one. Learn God yourself. Learn God. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 and verse number 7, and these are some passages we'll talk about as long as I'm preaching because they are just so important to our understanding our relationship with God. God is explaining who he is to Moses, and what he says of himself is true. And so when it comes to presenting God, you will want to do it the way he says it. And what he says in verse 6 and verse 7 needs to be understood. This is who God is. 
the Lord God passed by before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God. Now, you could have any number of, of words, just depending on the, the translation you have. The NASV says, with regards to who God is, that he is compassionate. You might have gracious, that he is gracious and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. He keeps loving kindness or mercy for thousands. He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Now, he will by no means clear the guilty. And he visits the iniquity upon the children to the children's children, third and fourth generation of those who hate him. What that boils down to is who God is in his essence and in his character. God is good and merciful and gracious and giving and long-suffering and righteous and just. And for all practical purposes in a home, the parents are God. And through the lens of a child, that's who they are. And so, when you are presenting God, you'll want to do that correctly. And the only way to do that correctly is to learn Him yourself and then teach Him. What your children need, what anybody needs, is a complete, correct, scripturally balanced presentation of God. God is not all anything. He's absolutely everything that He is. Sometimes God is presented as all anger and all wrath. And are there instances in Scripture where God judges? Absolutely. But is that all God is? No, it's not. Not at all. God is also love and mercy and grace and kindness. And does that presentation mean God never judges? No, it doesn't. And so you need a balanced, scriptural, correct view of God yourself, and then you'll want to present that to your family if you're going to heaven. Number two, practice Deuteronomy 6. So let's go look at Deuteronomy chapter 6 and see what Moses says to Israel. You'll want to practice this. You want to get your family to heaven? Practice what Moses says here. The section of Scripture is about parents, not children. Let's start there. This section of Scripture is about parents. The word son appears three times in verse 2. The word children appears one time in verse 7. The word Israel appears more than children. It appears twice, verse 3 and verse 4. And the word house appears more than children. It appears twice, verse 7 and verse 9. As we read through this section, focus on words like thou and thine and thee and your and you. In this text, the children aren't talking. The children are actually hearing the parents talk. The children are learning as much by observation as they are instruction. The frontlets, the hands, the head, the heart, these belong to the parents. The text emphasizes learning from God and doing what He taught. Who's going to do that? Parents are. Parents are learning from God, and then they're doing what He says and teaching their children who he is by their lives. Let's read it together. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse number 1, Moses says, Now these are the commandments, the statutes, and judgments which the Lord, here's our first your, your God, commanded to teach you, and that ye might do them in the land whither ye go to possess it, that thou mightest fear the Lord thy God to keep all his statutes, his commandments, which I command thee, thou, and thy son, and thy son's sons, all the days of thy life, and thy days may be prolonged. Hear therefore, verse 3, O Israel, and observe to do it, 
that it may be well with thee, and that ye may increase mightily, as the Lord, the God of thy fathers, hath promised thee in the land which floweth with milk and honey. Verse number four says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And it begins here. Thou, who? Israel. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. These are the words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. Well, notice verse 7. After all of that, he says in verse 7, and that thou, who would be the thou? That thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. The thou then are the parents. What are you going to do? You're going to teach them diligently to your children. And well, just keep following along. Thou shalt talk about them when thou sittest in thine house. Who's doing the talking? When thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou riseth up, and thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontless between thine eyes, and thou shalt write them upon the door of thy house and on thy gates. Whose house is it? Parents, it's your house. It's not theirs. You must know him so you can teach him to your children. That's the way it works. If you want to get your family, your children, you want to go to heaven, you got to practice these passages. Now, I appreciate the fact that as we talked about this morning, some parents' children are beyond that. Well, then clearly I'm not talking to you then, at least not there. But for those who have children still at home and they're on the way up, well, it behooves you to take all of what's said right there very seriously and begin the practice of doing those things. It's your children's best hope. Number three, present heaven properly. In the Bible, heaven is a place that's real. It's not talked about in, 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 in language that doesn't lend itself to reality. It's talked about as a real place. And the Bible informs us God created it and God is there. Constantly the scriptures say this. It needs to be presented properly. Heaven is the place where Jesus went after his death, burial, and resurrection. And generally we stop there because 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4 tells us that's the gospel. And the gospel is the good news that saves man's soul, Romans 1, 16 and 17. But typically in our minds, we stop there. Scripture doesn't. Scripture doesn't stop at the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Scripture teaches the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. Acts 1, 9 through 11, those men, those apostles stand gazing into heaven, and they're told, why stand ye here gazing into heaven? This same Jesus, which you have seen, go into heaven. He shall so come in like manner. What's the point? Points heaven. That's where Jesus is. That's where God is. Heaven's a real place. Needs to be talked about like that. It's not only a real place. Heaven is a place to be desired. You don't want to go to hell. No, 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 don't, don't play around with that. Don't, 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 don't be indifferent to that. If you go to hell and you miss heaven, you've missed everything. It's not an indifferent thing. It's, it's not a light thing. It absolutely is everything. Something has gone terribly wrong if the conclusion is, well, if I don't go to heaven, I'll just go to hell. <laughs> Something has gone completely wrong. 
in our thinking if that's the case. You can't get worse than hell. God is doing everything he can to avoid people going to hell. There are even graphic pictures in Scripture. Luke 16, 19 to 31 tells us you don't want to go to this place and your friends don't want you in this place. There's a man there in torments and he tells, hey, listen, send Lazarus back so that my brothers, what, come here and party with me? No, no, I don't want them here. No, misery does not love company in this place. Heaven is to be desired and hell is to be avoided at all cost. Heaven is and should be presented as the proper end of a faithful life. First of all, it's the purpose of life. In Acts chapter 17, as the Apostle Paul is talking to those men on Mars Hill and explaining the God of heaven to them, he says some amazingly wonderful things. Among them is found in verse 27 of Acts 17, where he says of God and man, he says that they should seek the Lord. What's the purpose of our existence? Why did God make the world? That's really where he starts about verse 24, God that made the world, all things that are therein, seeing he is Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't need anything as man from hands. He's not worshiping with man's hands as though he needed anything, seeing that he gives life to all and breath to all. And he says that they should seek the Lord. Well, that's the purpose of life. If you don't seek the Lord and find him, though he be not far from every one of us, then you've missed your purpose of being. Because if you don't seek the Lord and find him, you can't go to heaven. It really doesn't matter what you do in this life. If this life ends with you not finding Jesus, it will not matter what you contributed to society. If in the end you don't find Jesus, there are a lot of nice inventions. There are a lot of good products. There are a lot of useful tools. There are individuals who have contributed to the greater good of humanity in a variety or a thousand different ways. However, none of it matters if you don't find Jesus. What's the purpose of life? That they should seek the Lord and find him. That's the purpose of life. Well then, what's the point of life? Let's say I have. I found him, okay. What's the point? 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and verse 4, Peter describes God as giving exceeding great and precious promises that by these we might be partakers of the divine nature. If indeed you do find God, God bless you. If you have obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, God bless you. You have then fulfilled your purpose. Now what? Live like him. Go on into maturity. Abound more and more. Be sanctified and live holy. That's the point. Well, if you manage to do those, you manage to seek the Lord, find him, you fulfill the purpose, and then you grow in grace and knowledge, you've reached the point of life, well, then heaven is a proper end to a faithful life. It ought to be viewed and pictured and talked about that way. The Apostle Paul is neither unique when he says the words in 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 6, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I've kept the faith. Now, as a result of that, and really what that means is I've lived faithfully. I fought a good fight. I've kept the faith. I have lived faithfully. That's what he's saying. Henceforth, as a result of that, there is laid up for me a crown of life which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me, but not to me only. What are you saying, Paul? I'm not special. I'm faithful. 
And what I am about to experience is the proper end of a faithful life, which brings us to the next thought, and that's this. Heaven is a place that's attainable. Please, stop presenting heaven as a place for the exceptional few. The Bible does not do that. We tend to do that. Heaven is the place for the faithful, period. Hebrews 11 and verse 13, the Bible says, these all died in faith. That's it. You need to believe it yourself, and then you need to teach it with confidence to your children and to your family. Assure them that faithful people go to heaven. We sometimes emphasize that only faithful people go to heaven, and that's true. Only faithful people will go to heaven. Got it. What we ought to add is all faithful people go to heaven. It's not the exceptional few. It's every faithful person will go to heaven. Instead of presenting heaven as a place for the faithful few, we ought to present heaven as a place where your presence is anticipated and expected. If your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, you're expected to come home to heaven. Revelation 21 and verse 27 says as much. The Bible says, and there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie. I got it. No sin is going into heaven. What is? But they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Who's written in the Lamb's book of life, Christians? What are Christians doing? Living faithfully. Well, what do you expect at the end of the road? Heaven. In fact, Scripture would go further and say your reservation is being held. The only thing waiting is you. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and verse number 4, that's how Peter describes it. Peter describes it as a reservation. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance, here's how it's described, it's incorruptible, it's undefiled, and it does not fade away, it's reserved in heaven for you. After your faithful life, when you arrive on the shores of eternity, no one will be surprised to see you. No one. In fact, your presence is expected and anticipated. When Jesus went back to heaven after his resurrection, there was no shock in heaven. You know, in heaven, the Lord came down here to the earth. Heaven never said, I wonder if he'll make it. No, he's coming back. Jesus is going to do the will of the Father, and when he dies, he'll rise. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. And when he rose to heaven, they weren't surprised. In fact, Daniel 1 describes, Daniel 7, rather, 13 and 14 describes as anticipated and expected. This is where the coronation begins. I saw in the night vision, and one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and they brought him near before him. They brought him to the Ancient of Days, and there was given him dominion and glory and the king. that's exactly right and it was expected and anticipated where would you and I suppose that faithful people go when they die heaven forbid that we teach and teach and teach be faithful be faithful be faithful and then give the impression that we don't really know though heaven is a place that's anticipated 
and your presence is expected, and every faithful person will go to heaven. Your inheritance is kept, reserved, and protected. Number four, you want to get your family to heaven, fulfill your role within your family. The Bible describes the family, in my mind, it's descriptive of a little community, a little nation. Inside of this little nation, there's a father and mother and there's children. And inside of this little nation, the parents reign. They're the ones in charge. They are actually the lawmakers. Their sphere of reign is their home, their family. The father's the king, mother's the queen. If you like to go that far, I'm simply saying they rule. They govern the place. They make the rules and the laws. And the children are the citizens and the heirs of the kingdom. And inside of that space, God has designed that everybody has a role and a function to fulfill. And everybody has this expectation God does of each individual. And that little bitty nation is reflective of the bigger community of mankind. And inside of that place, we are to be taught and to be uh, reared and to be, be socialized in community in there so that we can act right in the larger community. That's the way God designed and intended and in that place, you want to get your family to heaven, do your part. Fulfill your role, and everybody has one. What if you're a husband? God's pretty specific, husbands. Love your wives. Oh, you don't have to go Google that. You don't have to go, I figure out what love is. You know there's five different Greek words. Yeah, we know there's a lot of different Greek words, but you know what love is? You sure do, and if you don't, Ephesians 5 will lay it out pretty clear. Love your wives how? As Christ loved the church. Well, how did he love the church? He gave himself for it. Well, what do I need to love my wife? Give yourself up for her. Well, that's how you love your wife. But if that's not enough, he says, nourish her, cherish her. I had a man tell me, man, I just don't know what nourishing and cherishing look like. I said, really? You don't know what that looks like? He kept talking and he went on to say, but you know what I think he said, there was a time in my life when I wanted a car, and it was a night, I don't even know what he said. I wish I could remember. I'm going to just throw out a number. It was a, a 1965 Camaro, and I couldn't afford it, and I worked for it and worked for it and worked for it and worked for it. I saved up my money, and then, it, you know, I, I finally had it, and I was able to buy it. And he said, I took my money over there, and I got that car. He said, and I drove that car home, and every day I come out, and I just look at that car. He said, and on the weekends, man, I would get out there and I would shine that car and I would wax that car and I would take care of that car and I would make sure there was no di I said, woo, you were really cherishing that thing, weren't you? <laughs> woo, you were really nourishing that thing, weren't you? Yeah, oh man, I was it. You know your wife's better than a car. You ain't got to say amen to that, but it's right. Your wife's better than a car. Your wife's more valuable than a car. And if you can do that to a car, surely you know what that looks like. And that's God's expectation of us husbands. Love your wives. Nourish her. Cherish her. Peter would add, give honor to her. Paul would caution, don't be bitter against her. He wouldn't caution it if it weren't possible. Can a man grow bitter with his wife? Yes, he can. Should he? No, he should not. Because God said, don't do that. What if you're a wife, Ephesians 5? Reverence your husband. If you have a 
newer rendering, not a King James and maybe not an ASB 1901. If you have a newer, more modern rendering, you read Ephesians 5 and you get to the end, it will say, and you wives see that you respect your husbands. Nothing wrong with that, I suppose. It's just that generally the word in English, respect, gives us the wrong connotation for what Scripture is demanding of, of wives. When we use the word respect, we have sayings attached with it. So we say things like, well, if you, if you want respect, you have to give respect. And you can't get respect if you haven't earned respect. That's terrible for the biblical teaching of God's Word. That's a terrible construct because the word reverence does not do that. In fact, I would urge if you're a wife, you should look up the word reverence and find out what this means. Behind that word ultimately is the kind of the word fear. It's a word where you're describing in thought and in action a bowing and an obeisance and a submission to someone. That's what's being described. And if you want to see a very good example of this in Scripture, you can see what to, to a couple of different ways. In the Old Testament, King Saul had a son, uh, and, and um, David sent for him, Mephibosheth, I think. David sent for him after David became king. And the Bible says, when he came into David's presence, he did reverence. He bowed. He did reverence to David. David was the king. He was from Saul's family, and he was fearful. He did reverence. You could see it, though, with David and King Saul. When King Saul disobeyed God and, and the prophet said, the kingdom is taken from you. God has rejected you from being king. And then in 1 Samuel 16, uh, David is going to be made king. And, and he defeats Goliath in chapter 17, and, and then Saul gets angry at David and begins to hate him. And Saul tries to kill David multiple occasions. And on one occasion, after fleeing for his life from Saul, David is inside of a cave with his men hiding. And of all the people, Saul comes into the cave. And David is hiding with his men in the wall, and one of his men says, we got him. In fact, he says further, the Lord has delivered him into our hands. Let's kill him. David would not allow it. David said, I will not lay my hand on the Lord's anointed. There was another occasion where Saul was asleep outside, laying on the ground. David came and stood over him at night. Again, another one of his soldiers said, let me kill him. You don't have to. I will just take the sword, and I will stab him through one time. He won't feel a thing, and it'll be over. And David said, no, he's the Lord's anointed. Here's the point with regards to reverence. David was reverencing what God had done by the position that Saul had. He wasn't respecting Saul because of Saul's behavior. What we do with it in our culture is, if a man doesn't act right, you don't have to respect him. It's not biblical. If your husband isn't what you think he ought to be, and he hasn't earned your respect, then you don't have to give it to him. Not biblical. When God says, and you wives, see that you 
reverence your husband, he's not saying your husband has to earn your respect. He's not saying if you want respect, give respect. He is saying your behavior needs to be like David to Saul, and you need to reverence what God designed regardless of behavior. Now, I say that, and I'll follow it quickly with, it doesn't mean God approves of your husband's behavior. It doesn't mean God endorses your husband in behavior. And if any man hearing me say these words concludes, then I'll just act a nut job and then tell her that she needs to reverence God, then you missed the first point. Husbands love your wives. And you shouldn't think that God will excuse your bad behavior because God has told her to do something. In fact, it is the case that y'all can both send your families to hell by your behavior. Husbands, you don't love your wife, it's a quick trip down to hell with that kind of behavior. Wives, you don't reverence your husband, well, let's just get together and tell our family, let's just go to hell then, because if we're not going to do it God's way, it's probably the fastest way to miss heaven. Further, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Children, you have an obligation to obey. There are some parents out there who are begging with children to obey. There are some parents out there threatening and, and lobbying and pleading, and the children are running the homes. This is not biblical. This is not from God. That's not his design. There are some smart-alecky, smart-mouthed children who are disrespectful. I'm glad none of them are here. But y'all know people, I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm saying we all have roles and obligations to the God of heaven, and children need to obey and honor and submit to their parents, and husbands need to love their wives, and wives need to reverence their husband. And that is our best hope, to get our family to heaven. Number five, practice your faith at home. The best thing we can do for our family is to practice the faith we profess. If you read Matthew 23, beginning in verse 1, you will hear our Lord talking to the Pharisees and condemning them for their hypocrisy. Let me ask you a question. Would you, with, for just a moment with me, think about being married to one of those Pharisees? Would you, for just a moment, thinking about being a child of one of those Pharisees? Now, you hear the Lord's description. Let me ask you this. What would their children and their wives think of their religion? Well, outside, they look great, but at home, if you were married to that, at home, if you were a child of that, listen to the Lord's description. He condemns them. They look great, but at home, they don't practice what they preach. The best we can do for our family is to practice the faith we profess. Oh, sure, it begins, I suppose, with faithfully attending worship. That's outstanding, John 4, 23, 24. We must worship God, and we must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Well, that's absolutely right. But please, don't teach your family that Christianity is what we do on Sunday. Instead, teach them by word and deed that we are Christians every day that ends in why. I'll give you a second. Practice the profession. Serve your brothers and sisters. Stop bad-mouthing Christians. Philippians 2, 1 to 5. Let this mind be in you. Do nothing from vainglory. Seek the welfare of others. 
Be benevolent and do good to all men, Galatians 6, 9, and 10. Be careful what you say about people who don't look like you. Be careful about that. Let us do good to all men. Which one? Everyone that's made in the image of God. Do good to all of them, especially those of the household of faith. Guard your heart, Proverbs 4.23. Tame your tongue, James chapter 3. Temper your temper, Ephesians 4.26-27. Give generously, Acts 20 and verse 35. Study and give diligence to show yourself approved, 2 Timothy 2.15. Let your light so shine, Matthew 5.13 and 16, and be transformed, not conformed. Let it be known and clearly understood that the faithful practice of our our profession, what we believe and teach, our faithful practice of that is our family's best hope to get to heaven. Giving to heaven won't be accomplished by many, but it can be accomplished by you, and it will be accomplished by all who practice the faith faithfully. Number six, parent like God. Learn God and emulate Him God is a father. In fact, he's our father. And when we open the Bible, the first thing that stands out about God is that God is giving. God gives to his children. Genesis 1, 3, beginning in verse 31, creation is a gift. In fact, that's how God himself couches it. When you end that chapter, God talks to Adam and his Eve, and he says to them, see, I've given you all. I've given you everything. How did you get it? I gave it to you. Make sure your child knows that, that we give you all. Days 1 to 5 are preparatory. Isaiah 45, 18, he didn't make it in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. Then came the inhabitants. Tell your children, show them dad and mom have given you everything. Not grudgingly, not hesitantly, not angrily, because you are a blessing from above. You are not a burden to us. You're not a problem for us. You're not an inconvenience. In fact, we think you're a blessing from God. Wouldn't that be great for children to hear? You're an eternal soul we got from heaven that we want to give back to heaven. And so we give you our all. We'll give you our time, our energy, our heart, strength, wisdom, money, goods. We will ultimately give you God, his word, his will, his ways. As you're doing that, be faithful, not flawless before your children. We say it, but we struggle to believe it and live it and model it before our children. But the Scriptures keep enjoining faithfulness, Revelation 2.10. Be faithful unto death. I'll give you a crown of life. Why? Faithfulness. John says, walk in the light as he is in the light. Paul says, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. How do you lay hold on eternal life? You fight the good fight. Faith is trusting God, doing what he says. And so what do we do in our homes? We teach and model that we trust God. That's what we do here. In marriage, in parenting, at home, in our lives, we show and we tell and we live. Proverbs chapter 3, beginning in verse number 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Parents, spouses, grandparents, please trust God. Stop falling apart at every inconvenience tragedy, disappointment, setback, and hurdle. Stop falling apart. Don't rely on your thoughts. Show and say to your family, we trust God. In this house, that's what we do. When things are good, we trust God. But what about when things are bad, Dad? We trust God. 
When times are hard, sometimes we don't have enough. What do we do? We trust God. When we suffer loss, we trust God. When we're sick, we trust God. When everyone is well, we trust God. What about natural disasters? We trust God. Horrible atrocities, we trust God. When the world around us falls apart, son, baby, daughter, we trust God. When the world's divided, we trust God. I beg you tonight, don't concede to the world. Don't conform to the world, and don't cry and fold your tent every time something happens in the world. When I was growing up, they had a saying, the grown-ups, they would say something like this, if y'all cry, what the baby's going to do? In biblical parlance, it sounds like this. Paul told the brethren, quit you like men. God told Jeremiah, if you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? God told Elijah, get out of the cave and go back to work. Peter said, gird up the loins of your mind. Joshua was told, get up. Sin in the camp. Since nothing is too hard for the Lord, the Lord does not endorse, support, or understand his children when they are beneath the shelter of his wing, living fearful lives. When they are under his watchful eye, paralyzed by uncertainty. When they are in the palm of his hand, destroyed by doubt. When they are on the safe, when they are safe on the sea of life, but shaking in the ship. If the goal is heaven, you cannot quit every time the world sets itself on fire. You can't stop every time someone in the church misbehaves. You can't fall down, fall out, and fall apart every time a tragedy in your life occurs, especially when you know this world is not our home. You know the whole world lies in wickedness. You know light and darkness are incompatible. When bad things happen to good people, we know time and chance happens to us all. We know the children of the devil act like their father. We know Christians are growing. They're not yet glorified. Therefore, our children need to see mature, spiritual, faithful, strong fathers and mothers who trust God so we and they can go to heaven, so they will know that they can trust God. Our hope is in God. Our confidence is in Christ. Our goal is heaven. If you stop, give up, quit, fall out, what are your children going to do? Be genuine and honest with yourself and your family. Our children, our family, need to know that we are not perfect. And we need to stop telling them that we are striving for perfection. I'm just going to beg you here, stop it. Stop telling people that. The word means complete. We know that. That's what the word means. Completion, maturity, that's what it means. It does not mean sinlessness. And if you're going to say it because that's what the text is, that's fine, but explain it. It's not sinlessness. We know that. Once we sin, we can no longer strive for sinlessness by definition. If you sin, you can't be sinless. There's no striving for it. And so tell your children the truth. Christianity is not about human perfection. It's about Christ's perfection. Christianity is not about our goodness. It's about God's grace. Christianity is not about our completeness. It's about our being made complete in Christ. Christianity is not about our flawlessness. It's about our faithfulness. And the truth is, we fail, we fall, we stumble. Now, I wouldn't go so far as to start calling us sinners, because the Bible calls us saints. And so stop that too. We're not sinners, we're saints, but saints fall and struggle and stumble. And you tell your babies, you might too. 
We're not perfect. We've sinned. We don't always have it together. We mess up. We argue. We fight. But we're trying. And God forgives. And God is gracious and kind and merciful and long-suffering and good. And so we continue to try and tell them, you must too. John tells us to walk in the light as he is in the light. The blood of Jesus Christ will cleanse us from all sin. And then he says, but if we sin, we have an advocate, chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. And so tell them and show them that God's goodness is what leads us to repentance, Romans chapter 2 and verse number 4. And that because of the hope we have in him, that's what motivates us to purge ourselves and live holy lives and not practice sin. That's what John says. Chapter 3 of his book in verse number 1, John says, See what manner of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. That's what we are. And so we are children of God. And the reason why the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. Beloved, we are God's children. And what will it be? We will be as he has appeared, but we know that when he appears, we should be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope, listen to it, purifies himself even as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. What's the motivation? Because we are his children, we have hope. And because we have hope, we purify ourselves. You have to get the motivation right. This is your why. Why live a holy life? Because I'm saved. Why live a holy life? Because I have hope. Why live a holy life? Because I am his child. Saved people, hopeful people, children and heirs of eternal life, those individuals purify themselves as he is pure. Why? They have the motivation to do it. They don't make a practice of sinning. And if they fall, then they get back up. Now, I say that, tell them the truth. Now, I mean by that, or let me quickly add, don't go crazy and tell them every bad thought, word, and deed you've committed. Because they're not peers or counselors or confidants. They're immature children, so they'll use it against you. And don't make them your friends and share all the news and notes on your spouse either. They are immature children. They'll pit you against each other. What I'm saying is be genuine, be honest, and tell them we're in the process of growing. We're all being sanctified, trying to get closer to our God. To get your family to heaven, some children have left home and are unfaithful now. And so some parents are asking, what should I do? Well, I would urge them, be loving to your children and your family. We've almost taught people that your love, that you love your children as long as they live right. And if we didn't say that outright, somehow that's what they garnered, and maybe we implied it. And then some of our children leave home, and they leave the Lord, and they get themselves in the sin and in the world, and we struggle. What do we do now? Some have gotten on drugs. Some committed fornication, thieves, homosexuals, drunkards. You know the list of sins. And if one misunderstands God and love, it'll be difficult for them that come home and for parents to have them home. So what do you do? You love like God. Well, how does God love? At least in these two ways, God's love is unconditional and God's love is unlimited. What does that mean? What does God loves do? Well, God loves does multiple things. Number one, God loves instructs. That's what he always does. You start in Genesis and read forward, and what you'll find is God loving his children enough to tell them what's right, tell them what's wrong and encourage them to avoid it. He instructs. What does he do? He teaches them. 
He corrects them where it's appropriate, and then he does it all, he will say, for their good, and then he allows freedom to choose. But not only that, God loves at all times. And so I'd encourage you, love them. Love them when? Especially when or if they fail. How does God love, and what does love do? Luke chapter 15 is in the Bible, and I think for this exact reason, to help us appreciate God's love. Because God loved the younger son in all three phases of his journey. When we open that account and start reading, that young man is at home. He hadn't yet asked for his inheritance. And so, if you were to freeze the account right there, based on what you know about the father, that young man is at home, what would you say? You'd say the father loved him. I think you'd be right. Well, that man did ask for his inheritance. He packed up his things a few days later, and he left and went to the far country. Let me ask you this. What does the father think about his son? He loves him in the far country. Well, then he came to himself. He got out of the pit. He came home. What did the father do? His father loved him. Now, let's be clear here because people misunderstand the word love. So here are some important notes about God loving him at all three phases. Love didn't prevent God's son from leaving home. And love may not prevent your children from leaving home either. Some people realize that, and they try to build walls to keep them at home. We cannot build walls so high to keep our children from getting out. Love didn't condone his actions. Let's be clear about that. Yes, his father loved him when he was at home. And yes, his father loved him when he was in the far country. But his father never condoned the actions of his son in the far country. And so I would urge, don't you condone the error of yours, but keep loving them. It's unloving to condone our family in their error, even if they're our children. God loved him. He didn't condone his actions. Also, love didn't refuse to accept him when he came back. So be ready and be in a position to receive yours. Love allowed this young man freedom of choice. He exercised it. Love longed for him when that choice hurt him. And then love met him, ran to him, kissed him, received him, welcomed him, and rejoiced at his return. In my mind, I'd like to believe that that young man knew his father well enough to know the reception he'd receive. And I'd like to believe that that was part of his motivation for getting out of that pig's pen. I'll go home to my father. He must have had some idea that his father would accept him. Don't give your children the impression that I love you when you do right, but I don't love you so much if you mess up. Love leaves the light on and the welcome home mat out, hoping that they'll come back. Be encouraging to your children. Positivity, hope, optimism belong to God and his cause and his people. There is a wonderful expression that God has in the Bible, and really, he just keeps saying it over and over again. In one way or another, God says this, not in these exact words, but in one way or another with his interaction with his children, he seems to just keep saying to them, yes, you can. It's God's encouragements to his children. It's why he gives them the commands and the instructions that he does. Effectively, God is saying to Abraham, yes, you can offer me your child. I believe you can, and he does. To Job, he says, yes, you can endure everything Satan can throw at you. Moses, yes, you can go back to Egypt. David, yes, you can defeat a giant. Joshua, yes, you can lead my people. Sarah, yes, you can have a child. Caleb, yes, you can take this mountain. Peter, yes, you can come back. 
Saul, yes, you can change. And I'll be with you every step of the way. Families who are committed to God should be a positive place of hope and optimism, not a pessimistic factory of doom, despair, and doubt, not if they belong to God. Encourage conversation with your children. God does. Come now, he says. Let us reason together. God is effectively saying, let's talk. You tell me what's on your mind, I'll tell you what's on my mind. He is interested in hearing, and he does. And so Noah finds grace, and Abraham is told, for I know him. And Abraham even pleads to God on behalf of Sodom, and God moves on his behalf. Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? I know him. He'll command his children, his household after him. He'll keep my commandments in the way of the Lord. Moses was faithful in all of God's house, and David is a man after God's own heart. Forgive your children. Psalm 103, verses 6 to 14. But again, it would encompass the whole Bible. Genesis 1 begins in relationship. The rules are for the good of the children. The relationship is based on love. And when they failed, God went to them. The world gave itself to sin. God went to them. Over and over and over again, God is trying to repair the relationship. He's ready to forgive. He's willing to forgive. He desires to forgive. He promises and he does forgive as far as the east is from the west. So far has he hidden our sins from us. Finally, pray. It might be the case of your children outside of the house. It might be the case that your family is fractured and falling apart and on and on the problems persist. Pray. Now would be a great time to that. Pray without ceasing. Men ought always to pray and not lose heart. Pray persistently. Persistent prayer is not to be confused with vain repetition. Jesus condemns the one and enjoins the other, and so pray persistently. Pray in faith. Pray according to Scripture. Pray for time and chance and opportunity, and then seek and grasp the opportunity. Pray for patience. Pray and then act. Apologize if necessary. There were different times in our lives where it was clear that in my family I was the problem. There were those times. And there were times when the only solution to that problem was an apology from the person who was the problem. And so, I'm sorry. The problem in this family is not my wife. The problem in this family are not the children. The problem in this family is a lack of leadership according to God's will and God's way, and a man who's not acting like God. That's the problem here. And every other subsequent problem is the subsequent problem to that problem. Sometimes a man or a woman just has to own the circumstance and the situation that they've created and simply say, listen, I'm sorry, but let's fix it. Maybe if that's necessary. Explain and provide clarity. Children don't know what's happening in marriages very often. And so marriages operate in one sphere and parenting operates in another. And sometimes those children, when they're growing up, have no idea what the parents are going through over here as they try to do this job. And it's amazing how the one can affect the other. And even when this one doesn't affect this one, sometimes this one suffers because when the marriage is bad, people then leave the marriage to parent the children. Well, I can't have a good marriage, so I'll just salvage it by having good children. 
How are you going to get good children out of a terrible marriage? How are the children going to benefit from a terrible marriage? Are they not going to notice? Are they not going to see? Are they not going to feel it? Pray and keep living faithfully. Encourage, don't berate. Wait on the Lord. Admonish them as brethren. Keep doing good. Pray for others and ask others to pray with and for you. Pray specifically. Strengthen numbers. Pray together. You may just have to accept the reality that they don't want to go. Getting our families to heaven is difficult. It's challenging. It's complex. But getting to heaven is also personal. And each person must decide whether or not she or he wants to go to heaven ultimately. But giving to heaven is possible. And it's probable. And it's anticipated and expected. And many have accomplished it. Heaven is a prepared place to be filled with people who prepare to go. And there will be so many people in heaven that it'll be impossible to count them all. That's the way the Bible describes it as an innumerable host. John says, after this, I beheld in low a great multitude, but not just a great multitude, a multitude which no man could number of all nations, kindreds, people, and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. If you've obeyed the gospel, you can be and you are expected to be among them. In order to go to heaven, just keep following Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way. If you will do that, then you'll go to heaven. If you've never obeyed the gospel, then you can't go. No, it's not because Eric said so. It's because Jesus said, I'm the way, and you won't get in the way. And if you don't get in the way, you can't reach the goal. You have time. Read 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 to 9 and see what our Lord said. Eat the bread of Jesus. Drink the water of Jesus. The inner man is renewed spiritually with his spiritual sustenance. Imitate the example of Jesus. Follow in the steps of Jesus. Getting to heaven is doable, knowable, achievable, and God is expecting it. One more thing. Please, stop telling people they can't go to heaven alone. Now, I know it's not ideal, and I know we hope it's not the case, but the teaching is not scriptural. And so stop telling people they can't go alone. Now, why would you say that, Eric? Because the Bible does. And it says it very plainly in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 13 to 15. The Apostle Paul wrote, Every man's work shall be manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Please do all you can to get your family to heaven. Take as many as humanly possible. But if nobody else is willing to go to heaven, 
You make sure you go. How many in this room would go to heaven if we all made sure I go? Well, you see, heaven will be populated by so many people, it won't be numbered if every person made sure they get there. Not a child of God tonight. And friends, you can't go to heaven outside of Jesus. It's the gospel that puts you into Christ where your sins are washed away, where you become a new creation, and where you get to walk the road of this life on to heaven. If you've never done that, we beg you tonight, become a Christian by obedience to the gospel. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. John 8, 24, he is. Allow God's goodness to change your heart and your mind. Godly sorrow leads to repentance, of repentance not to be regretted. Confess the name of Jesus and be buried with him in baptism. Put the old man to death. Allow him to be buried and rise and walk in newness of life. And that new life, faithfully lived, will take you to heaven. I pray your family will go along with you. If you are his child and you're living faithfully, keep living faithfully. And the journey ends in heaven. If you are his child and you're not living faithfully, come home tonight and start again and go to heaven. There's no good reason for anybody to miss out on heaven. We can help you in any way. We invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.